still burning around us, still disappearing or turning to ash, still dividing, still having problems. And until God turns things around and begins the latter temple, this is something that will continue apace. It is just as true now as when I first began preaching it back in 96. Uh, it has just gotten worse over time. So it continues to be that way. And until this turnaround comes, it will continue that way. We may get to it a little bit today if we get to the Psalms. Uh, but there is a scripture there that, that indicates, along with Haggai, that there will be a time when peace and unity does return to the church. But in the meantime, until that happens, uh, we're still going to continue to have difficulties throughout the church. So, the burning of the temple is not something only historical, but it has to do with what's going on right now. And we are to be very aware of that. And God says that this is a facet. And one day will turn into a feast of joy because He will bring unity and peace into the church. And that is only a short time away as it is a time when the two witnesses and the remnant of the church come together to form the latter temple, as is very clear in Haggai and Zechariah. So that's the time God says He will bring peace back to the church, or at least the faithful remnant. Ninety percent uh, will have their opportunity to repent and change during the tribulation that is to come. Now, I want to address another issue, and uh, Shirley generally tries to put a title on the sermons, but I want to include this, uh, this section, even though it is, in a sense, in the form of an announcement, but I want it on tape so that uh, when questions come up about the calendar in the future, this can be referred to. But uh, the calendar is a very in some ways, difficult thing because there are so many factors that come into it. And there is one which has come up that I had not addressed, uh, a technicality uh, that does affect things. So I want to go into a bit of an explanation here. We might entitle this uh, calendar discussion slash Psalms whatever when we get there. Uh, if we do, I think we will. Uh, there is no doubt the calendar is to be determined every year by the equinox by in the spring, by the uh, conjunction of the sun, moon, and earth every month, and then by sundown. Those are the three heavenly signs that God has given that uh, there is to be a new month and the first day of the new month. We have understood that. And the three events occur only once in the year, the time of the spring equinox. And then thereafter, we only, for the following months, we only use the conjunction of the moon along with the following sundown to determine new moon evening and the first day of the new month. Now, Perhaps in many respects it was never a problem until modern times that we had to worry about different times on the face of the earth. Throughout most of man's history, wherever you stood and the sun was straight overhead, you knew it was noon. And you only went by what you saw. You were not fully aware of the fact that it might have been on the other side of the earth midnight when the, the sun was shining directly down upon you at noon. And it didn't impact your life materially in any way in particular. So time zones and international dateline and all that kind of thing really meant nothing. Now, necessity is the mother of invention. And we did not have an international date line, nor did we divide the earth up like the sections of an orange, until beginning about 1885. And what created a problem 
was train travel. Once people were able to move quickly over thousands of miles, and this was more of a problem really in the United States and Canada than it was even in Europe because the distances there are much shorter. But here you could cross the country by rail, traveling day and night, fairly quickly, and time became a problem. When the telegraph was instituted, time became a problem. Because as you traveled, the time of sundown, the time of sunup, changed. Now, we experience it today because of our telecommunication system. Very simply, if you're in California and you need to talk to someone about business in New York, you have to calculate whether he's out to lunch, at home in bed, or whether he's at the office yet, based on the time that it is in California. There's a three-hour difference. In Alaska, it's even another hour in, of difference. So, you don't want to waste your phone call, so you mentally calculate how much earlier it is in New York than it is in California, and time your phone call based on that. So, we're familiar with it in that sense in our society today. Now, if you travel internationally, it becomes more of a problem. You don't just gain or lose an hour or two or three as you travel east to west like we do here uh, when, when we travel by airplane. In South Africa, for instance, there's a nine-hour gap, nine time zones, nine hours difference. And if you want to call home, it's better you call home if it's in the middle of night in Africa than it is you call in the middle of the day in Africa and it's the middle of night at home. I've learned it works better if I'm up rather than waking somebody up, if you see what I mean. So you have a nine-hour gap, and you have to calculate, is it earlier or is it later at home? And it can change from evening to morning, what time it is here, uh, in terms of the day even. Now, when you go to Australia and New Zealand, I found I had to double the calculation, not only did I have to figure out what time of day or night it was at home to call, but I also had to figure which day it was. And if you're in Australia calling on a business call to the United States, it's critical to know if it's Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. And it is different. It gets confusing. Now, they began to do it in 1885, or at least the plan was put forth to divide the earth into 24 time zones, each 15 degrees in distance apart, to make them equal around the world. And that was later adopted, uh, so we have time zones. And it became even more critical, of course, when you began to travel by airplane instead of just train, because you could cover those time zones so much more rapidly, and the time would change. Now, how does this affect the calendar? Understand, and I think I've mentioned this before, that from God's standpoint and the sides of the north, from his throne, every week he observes people keeping the Sabbath for 48 hours. The Sabbath actually lasts, in time lapsed, 48 hours. Now, how is that? Well, let's say we're standing right here when sundown comes Friday. We begin the Sabbath then. Well, if you're in California, sundown comes later. So they begin observing the sundown or the Sabbath about an hour after we do. If you're in Hawaii, it's several more time zones before the sun goes down. And you may be five hours into the Sabbath before the sun goes down in Honolulu, and they begin keeping the Sabbath. I found living in Alaska, I had to be careful if I called somebody on the East Coast about business because I was ready to talk business and it was already Sabbath there. They couldn't talk business. Sabbath had already come to them, but it hadn't to me. So that continues to march around the earth hour by hour. So from the time, let's say, sundown began here, it's 24 hours, or 23 hours at least, which would it be? 
well, 24, I guess, before the last person on this other side of the earth coming back your way begins to keep the Sabbath. So by the time that person, as the sun comes back to you, begins to keep the Sabbath, he has another 24 hours to keep it. So it only lasts a day or 24 hours for you and me, wherever we are on the earth. But in terms of lapsed time, the date lasts for 48 hours before it's done. Now, I know this gets confusing and complicated, especially when you're traveling, it does. But we are on a round earth and we have to deal with it. That's the way God created it, and it's good. But we have to deal with the complications and implications. Now, I think, and I think this can be fairly well substantiated, that the Garden of Eden was at the place of Jerusalem. Uh, John Reitenbaugh, Jim Rector, others have given a lot of proofs, and I gave a sermon about it or two as well, I think, showing that the Garden of Eden would necessarily have been at the place of Jerusalem. Now, which Jerusalem is another question, and we won't get there, but uh, Jerusalem was the center of God's government. That's the place that he chose to place his name in Israel. And when Christ returns and the Father, the beginning of the millennium, they will set up their headquarters at Jerusalem. He will return to the Mount of Olives nearby. So that is going to be the center of the universe. And having a round earth, time then will begin at Jerusalem. Just as it did when God created the heavens and the earth, day and night, in the Garden of Eden. It was the center, or the beginning point, of man's experience, and it was the center from which day and night began. And that will continue in the world tomorrow. Now, there'll be no day or night in Jerusalem because the Father and the Son are the light of it. I understand that. But if we're on a round earth, and if there is day and night around the earth, it will have started at Jerusalem in terms of time. Now, mankind has come up with various uh, ways of determining time and where it begins and ends. And rather than choosing Jerusalem, either in the Middle East or here, which they didn't know about, uh, they decided the best place would be just east of London at Greenwich, a little town there. And from there they went on an imaginary line north to south through the poles, and they tried to avoid population centers was part of it because it's confusing to have a situation where you have a different hour within, let's say, one city. Uh, what if a timeline went through Chicago? So it's 8 o'clock on this side of Chicago and 9 o'clock on that side of Chicago. Well, we can create confusion. So even in the United States, rather than keeping it on a straight 15-degree line, they've zigzagged it back and forth to avoid populated areas where they logically could. So it's not a straight line with straight orange peel, but it varies somewhat. And they even move it in the Pacific, around certain islands and so on. So we have the situation where it runs between Little and Big Diomede Island, between Alaska and Russia, very short straight in there. On one side of the line, it's Sunday, the other side, it's Monday. And if you go across, you're a day older or a day earlier, depending on which way you decide to go. Did I say earlier or older? I meant younger or older by a day though you may not feel it. Now, considering that they start the new, or they count the hours, they, they, they start the date down in the South Pacific of a change of day, but the, the start of the hours of the day begin in Greenwich, England. In other words, if you go east from Greenwich, you add an hour, plus one, plus two, plus three, as you go through the time zones. When you come west toward America, they become earlier. So it's minus one, two, three, four, five, so that New York, the eastern time zone, is minus five from Greenwich. 
come across Central to Mountain, and it's minus 7 from Greenwich. Now, when I began doing this, I started it from Jerusalem in the Middle East, which is plus 2 from Greenwich. So if I wanted to know when the conjunction was in that Jerusalem, I would take the time of the conjunction at Greenwich, which is what all the tables of the Naval Observatory and so on are based on. So you've got to take the time at Greenwich, or universal time as they call it, and then add or subtract depending on what area you want to consider. So if time is to begin at Jerusalem, then we added two hours. So the conjunction, the time that it occurred, because the conjunction of the sun, moon, and earth is not based on sun, uh, on time zones. It is a specific event that occurs in the heavens. And it can be any of 24 different time zones where you may be standing that it occurs. So the way you determine it then is what time was it at Greenwich, England, according to the tables in the books, when that occurred, to get the time in that Jerusalem, you just simply add two hours, plus two. Now, if we're going to use the Jerusalem here, you minus the hours, so that it happens at, well, let's say in Jerusalem there, if it happened at 9 o'clock Greenwich, it's 11 o'clock in the evening in that Jerusalem. Here, seven hours earlier, based on Mountain Standard Time. In other words, there are seven time zones between Greenwich, England, and here. Now, bear with me. I hope I don't make this more complicated than it is. But we need to understand uh, something based on this year, in fact. So, if Jerusalem be here, which I think it is, I want to use the original Jerusalem, not the counterfeit, to determine time, because Christ is coming to the true Jerusalem wherever it is. Now, we can only act on the best knowledge we have. And I think most of us realize now the promised land was here. This is where Abraham walked. But Zion is here, and probably Jerusalem is here because you can't separate them. So we have been using for several years this Jerusalem or the time zone that it's in. Now, some people uh, figure out where the conjunction is, and they don't go to any Jerusalem, but they figure it, whatever time it was, where they're standing is how you figure it. So that every individual around the earth simply makes up their own mind when the feast comes. Now, if you're in a worldwide work, that creates all kinds of problems because you have all kinds of different people keeping the feast at all different times. And it isn't based just on time zone east to west, but the latitude you are north or south will cause a change in sundown as well. In other words, sundown in Anchorage is very different than in Los Angeles, or in Chile, San Diego, than Los Angeles. So we would have people figuring their latitude, their longitude, and when sundown comes to them, and you would have abject confusion. Now let me draw that down and make an illustration for you to prove that. There was a time I lived in Beaver Dam, Arizona, between St. George and Mesquite, Nevada. All right, Arizona stayed on Mountain Standard Time year-round. Nevada, which is an hour earlier, kept Daylight Savings Time, as did Utah. Utah was on Mountain Standard, same as Arizona, six months out of the year, and an hour earlier at other times. And Nevada was also fluctuating. So sitting in Beaver Dam... I had to calculate almost daily, or at least by season, will the stores be open yet in Nevada or Mesquite? I mean, St. George or Mesquite. Will they be closed at this hour when I want to go to the one or the other place at this hour? Now, here, we generally observe Utah time, even though we're four hours south of the border into Arizona, because we do business there, all our jobs are there in Utah, so we use Utah time to save confusion. But if you want to go to the DMV over here in Colorado City, they use Mountain Standard Time year-round, and you may get there an hour 
too late or too early, depending on whether it's opening or closing. You've got to calculate it. Now, with the feast, how would this vary? You see, the way I've been doing it, and there's something I didn't understand about counting the plus and minus about from Greenwich, is that Arizona, Mountain Standard Time in Arizona, right now, as we're sitting here, is minus seven from Greenwich. But with Mountain Standard, I mean with Daylight Savings Time in Utah, it's only six hours different because time on the clock is an hour later. Okay? No, an hour earlier because they, they adjust it back. So, in Utah right now, it's minus six from Greenwich, but in Arizona, the time that's being used, it's minus seven. Now, that wouldn't matter most of the time in calculating the conjunction because there's usually far more than an hour's difference between sundown and the conjunction. But once in a while, it comes close, like it did this year. Uh, figuring on, on Mountain Standard or Arizona time, uh, when the conjunction occurred, or does occur, for September, it is, the conjunction occurs about a half hour, give or take a couple minutes, before uh, the conjunction. Therefore, we calculated that uh, trumpets would be on the 16th because the conjunction comes on the 15th before sundown. Then sun, uh, no, the conjunction, yeah, before sundown, so you start counting that sundown immediately 30 minutes later. So we came up with the 16th. However, in Utah, it's different. Now, I was only figuring an hour for sundown different. But it's not just sundown, it's also the gap in the amount of hours from Greenwich. Seven or six, depending on which side of the border you're on. And this year, since they come so close together, sundown and the conjunction, if you do it based on Arizona time, indeed, Feast of Trumpets, or the first day of the seventh month, would be the 16th of September. But if you were standing in Utah and using Utah time, it would change because of the six-hour gap to Greenwich, plus adding an hour to sunset with daylight savings time, and it would put it on the 17th because it's that close, or they're that close together. Now somebody says, well, why don't we just go on Arizona time because it stays the same. You see, from summer to winter, it will vary. Half the year, we're on the same time as Utah. Half the year, we're an hour different. And we've adjusted to that. Now, that has implications for a local congregation. And that's why you have to use a particular point on earth to avoid confusion. If we went on Arizona time and figuring the seventh month of the year, this year, standing in Arizona based on the hour on the clock, we would keep it on the 16th, but people in Utah, St. George, where we have members living, would keep it on the 17th. In one congregation, you would have that phenomenon. Now, we would all rather keep the feast together, would we not? Instead of having part of the congregation keep it on the 17th, part on the 16th. So the suggestion of using Arizona time year-round would make it simpler, but would it make it correct? That is why you need a place on earth where the latitude and longitude will always be the same, Jerusalem, no matter what the time on the clock might be. Do you follow me? So, if Jerusalem was the center of the earth at creation, and still is, thereby, by extrapolation, and will again be when the kingdom comes to the earth, then perhaps that is the point we should use. 
So I feel that even though we have to go back and forth, let's say for the 2013 calendar, when I figure the dates, I'll have to figure daylight savings time plus Greenwich time based on where we are according to our clock. And it will vary from six to seven hours depending on the local time being used. So if we use Utah time year-round, you'll have to figure when the sundown was in conjunction with the conjunction based on the time of day it is in Utah. And I picked Cedar City as being nearby and the sundown time at Cedar City. So we can all do it at the same time together. Now, if we do this, it means that come September 15th, the conjunction of the moon will occur after sundown in Utah, based on the six-hour minus from Greenwich and the time of sundown based on mountain daylight time instead of mountain standard time. So, to be more correct, I think we have to adjust it one day forward uh, to the 17th. The 17th of September will be New Moon Day instead of the 16th, as it says on your little calendar that I generated. So I think I was in error on that. I was, I was, I, see, I was just thinking, there's a seven-hour gap between Greenwich and here, which there is. Especially in Arizona, where the time doesn't change. It's always a seven-year gap. But in Utah, in effect... We're operating on Central Standard Time when it's Mountain Daylight Time in Utah. It's an hour earlier. And that does affect it this year because of how close sundown is to the equinox in this part of the world. So, any questions on that? Did I make it perfectly muddy? Uh, Maybe a longer explanation is... More difficult. I should have just said I made an error. It should be the 17th. And, but, but I think it's important to explain why and where I was making the error. Uh, yes, indeed, there are always seven uh, hours, seven time zones between Greenwich and here. But we change the time, making it six. And then sundown is based on that daylight savings time as well. So we know, in effect, sundown is an hour later. Now, sundown is when sundown is. But what time it is on our watch will vary by an hour, okay? Because they're trying to save time for you in the evening with the sun up instead of time in the morning when you don't care as much, maybe. It doesn't affect your golf as much or whatever the situation might be. So here's the effect it will have. We'll move every date on our calendar forward one day for September. It also affects October the same way. Although there are no feasts in October, uh, New Moon Day will be one hour later. Now, daylight savings time goes off November 1st, so all those calculations from then on should be correct because Utah and Arizona were on the same time when we calculated those, or daylight saving time will be off. So it only affects September and October this year. So let me go through the list with you, and you could jot down these dates and and, uh, change them on your calendars for planning and so on. So the trumpets, piece of trumpets, will be Monday, September 17th. We had it on Sunday the 16th before. I'm sorry to have to change that because it may affect work schedules and so on, but I can't tell you that we learn something until we learn it. And uh, one of my sisters pointed this out. I thought it was one calculation, just sunset based on mount, or daylight savings time. I didn't realize you have to make two separate calculations. Uh, the time between here and Greenwich and the time of sundown. They'll both vary. So, this is, this is the time that the Jews this year, ironically, are keeping. The feast will be according to the schedule that we're now adopting. Uh, for trumpets. So on this calendar, it shows Rosh Hashanah, 
the same day that we'll be keeping trumpets. Uh, they, uh, we, years they postpone, it's different. They've had trouble grasping this as well. I read this morning on the Internet that even back in the 12th century, before trains and all that, they were having debates on how do you figure the Sabbath around the world. And it was a very muddy and confusing thing. And even to this day, they have trouble deciding uh, when to turn off the lights and when to tear their toilet paper on Friday and who should do it when. I jest in part about some of the silly rules, but but they have had a great deal of consternation and confusing and confusion on this. But I think using the heavenly calendar, it actually makes it simple, equinox, conjunction, sundown. That's the way the heavenly calendar works up there. But what time of day on the clock where you're standing is it in conjunction to Jerusalem is where... Uh, the technicality or the difficulty can occur. And I was missing one calculation on that, so I'm trying to correct that here. All right, let's go through the list. Trumpets will be the 17th. The fast of the seventh month will move to the 19th. Uh, atonement will move a day to the 26th. Feast of Tabernacles is quite simple. It begins on the 1st of October and goes for eight days. October 1 through 8. And then the new moon day in October will be the 17th. So the new moon Bible study will be the evening of the 16th. First of the month will be the 17th. And that should be all the changes that occur as a result of, of understanding this better. So if you have questions on it, uh, we can address it. Uh, individually or whatever, uh, you get something complicated like that, and sometimes it's difficult to follow, especially when speaking. It's easier to read it and and go through it line by line and, and understand it that way. So if there's any confusion, let me know. We'll try to clear it up. And if I'm wrong, let me know. We'll try to clear it up. But I think that this has become clear that this is the way it has to be. Now let us go to the Psalms for at least a little while. <coughs> We're down to chapter 133. <coughs> and he's projecting into the future here, as we saw last week in Psalm 132, when things are going to be turning around and a place is found for uh, God's habitation, Zion. And I think that there's some implication perhaps here that that has been lost for a time and needed to be found. I think God has shown us that, and I think that the proof of that will become more and more abundantly clear as we proceed. And in light of that understanding, look at 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So that there be unity, peace, harmony uh, within the church. As I said before, in the announcements, that is not the case throughout the Church of God today, as scattered and as uh, difficult as the circumstance today is. But projecting forward, Haggai 2, verse 9, says that of the latter temple, in this place will I bring peace. And the context of Haggai is in the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the gathered remnant of the church, which will form the latter and last temple in this age before the Father and the Son return at the beginning of the millennium. That is made clear in Zechariah 1 through 4, actually 1 through 6, tied with Revelation 11, that it is speaking of the time of the last restoration of the church, when the faithful remnant comes together with the two witnesses to form that. So, peace in our time is coming. In the meantime, we're going to have to deal around the world with disunity, with discord, with different and varying beliefs throughout the church, with different attitudes about a lot of different things. So, God says, until that time when He brings peace, 
there will be difficulty. But when that time arrives, and I think it will be quite shortly now, then the confusion is going to disappear and He will bring peace. So let's pray toward this end. I think this Scripture goes together very well with Haggai 2 and Zechariah. And in the context here, uh, even the Protestants recognize that this is the restoration of the church, this section of the Psalms, onto the end. So, the good news of Haggai and Zechariah is being stated here in a different forum, but the context is the same. Looking forward to the time that unity will come. And there has never been as much unity in the church, even all the way back that I can remember, as there will be in the future. Now, there for a while, we were fairly well unified. But we still had groups of ministers breaking off. We still had systematic theology projects coming along. We still had fallings away here and there. And the history was somewhat rocky, wasn't it? Even though in some respects we were, we were united under one banner, under Herbert Armstrong, still in all there were frustrations, difficulties, divisions, and problems. And then when he died, it really went into the toilet and fell apart. And God did it with a foreknowledge of it and perhaps allowed Satan to do it just as he did with Job. So, even in the former temple, there was not the peace and harmony that I believe the Scriptures project will occur in the latter temple. And as we see this earth and the leaves on the trees getting closer and closer to a time of economic and military impact, this date is drawing near when God will gather His people. So, the unity is not too far away. Now, we should be struggling and striving for it in the meantime, and we will have a certain amount of difficulty in achieving it. But we have something to look forward to, some hope in the future. And if we do our best to do it today to the best of our ability, then perhaps God will include us when He does truly unify it in the future. So He says that it is a pleasant thing when there's unity, peace, and harmony. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that round down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. So Aaron was the high priest under Moses. He was the spokesman in that sense for Moses because Moses uh, complained to God that he stuttered or whatever. He couldn't speak, so God said, all right, you go ahead and do the job, but uh, Aaron will speak for you. But even in the context of Haggai and Zechariah, you see the office of high priest. People say, there, well, there's no priesthood today. Well, yes, there is. And in fact, it even names a high priest for the end time in the latter temple. And Christ said that there is a priesthood there in the book of Hebrews. He said it's just the Melchizedek priesthood instead of the Levitical priesthood. So the priesthood still exists today. It's just under a under Christ, who was was and is the ultimate high priest. But there is a high priest even here in the end time church, or shall be when the time comes. So Paul was not speaking out of school. He didn't say the priesthood was done away. He said it is different. It is Melchizedek priesthood, or the Melchizedek, through Christ as the high priest, as opposed to Aaron as the high priest of the Levitical priesthood. Let's understand that. And I think it is not ironic that Aaron is mentioned here in terms of the unity of the New Testament church when it comes together. So he says, it's like the anointing oil that came off of Aaron that went down to the skirts of his garments. Maybe we're anointing in a wrong fashion. I don't know. Uh, we take a little dab of oil and place it on your head, but it sounds like they used a big bowl or something when they anointed Aaron. It ran all the way down uh, his head to his garments. As the dew of Hermon 
And, and as the view is not in, I don't know whether it's in your Bible or not, it's in italics in mine, perhaps it should read, As the view of Hermon that ascended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Eternal commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, this is a very interesting verse, because in the Middle East, Mount Hermon is... Um, well, I don't remember the exact distance, but I went up on Mount Hermon in the rental car, and it was quite a long drive down to Jerusalem from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is right up on the Lebanese border, and Jerusalem is way down in Israel. It's not a big country, but it's still, I don't remember, probably at least a hundred miles, maybe further from Mount Hermon down to what they call Mount Zion on the outside of the wall of Jerusalem. But this would seem to indicate is the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now, Hermon's dew over there would not fall on the mountains of Zion. In fact, there are no mountains of Zion. Uh, they, haven't, they can't even really determine which little ridge going off down from Jerusalem is Zion. Some pick the one that is traditional, some say it's a different one. But it certainly is not the joy of all the land, nor can you count the towers of it unless you're counting headstones. This verse would seem to indicate that Mount Hermon is quite near Zion and Jerusalem, and that the dew from Mount Hermon higher would fall on the mountains of Zion. It makes me wonder if Cedar Mountain might not be Mount Hermon. I think that is a distinct possibility because it sits considerably higher and the dew of the morning as the wind went up and down the canyon would drop some of that dew on the Zion that we know. That is an impossibility in the Middle East given the distance between what they call Zion and what they call Mount Hermon. It doesn't fit this scripture at all. And he says, for there, in the mountains of Zion, the Eternal commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, God, from Zion, issued the new covenant. I think he even issued not only the old covenant, but even the Garden of Eden had to have come from there. And I don't know whether it was used in those proof sermons or not. But consider this, within Eden was the tree of life, symbolic of eternal life, life forevermore. They were not permitted to partake of it unless certain conditions were met and God then gave permission, right? But that's where it was. The tree that symbolized eternal life was in the Garden of Eden. And here it says that from the mountains of Zion, God commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So even as early as Eden, in Zion, God had the tree of life. Now, it was then offered, eternal life, to a few individuals. David mentions that it was offered to him. It was offered to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and a few other notables from the Old Testament. And they then, therefore, are listed in Hebrews 11 as waiting in their graves until the resurrection of the just. So, to me, it is quite clear that life forevermore was first instituted in Eden as a possibility, though it did not become a reality at that point. It was reinstituted by Christ through the disciples at Jerusalem at the beginning of the New Testament church. Now, it was from Jerusalem, as we read in the New Testament, that Christ began the training of the disciples. But it also has to coincide with Psalm 133.3, which says, Life forevermore emanated from Zion. Therefore, 
Zion and Jerusalem have to be in the exact same area, contiguous one to the other. They cannot be separated because if life was instituted in Eden, Jerusalem, and Zion, they all have to be together. Follow? You can't separate them. Either Zion and Jerusalem are in the Middle East, or Zion and Jerusalem are in China, or Zion and Jerusalem are in Utah. Now, you can pick some other places, Brazil if you want, but we need to determine truly where it is. It is an important question. You might say, well, it doesn't matter. Well, it matters in calculating the holy days, doesn't it? It matters in where Christ is going to return, doesn't it? It matters where the church was started and where life first emanated from, doesn't it? It is a very, very important question to answer. And this particular verse, I think, is a very important one in us understanding that you can't separate Eden, Zion, and Jerusalem. They all have to be in the same area. And Hermon has to be right there with them can't be 100 or 150 miles north, whatever it is, a good long way, enough that the view would not fall there. <coughs> so I think Psalm 133 is a pivotal verse, that there's an awful lot in there that we might just read over and not notice. But if you tie it in with some other scriptures, it becomes very important. Life eternal is very important. And understanding where it was from and where it shall be in the future is also very important. Christ and the Father will dwell in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly, when they return, and that's where everybody will go to the feast from around the world. Important to know where that is. Christ is coming back there. Important to know where that is. Let's go on to Psalm 134 then. Behold, bless you the Eternal, all you servants of the Eternal, which by night stand in the house of the Eternal. Now, he's just given us some very important information in chapters 132 and 133. And he says, now, take a deep breath, stand back, and bless the Eternal. Give praise to God. Those who by night stand in the house of the Eternal. Now, normally you would think, that we would stand or do service in the house of the Eternal during the daytime. So I think what he's imparting here is that it's important day and night to be on watch in the house of the Eternal. Now, the church is the house of the Eternal. We are the temple of God as individuals and as a body. And we need to be vigilant. That's what the parable of the ten virgins is about. Be vigilant and be ready, because we know not the day or the hour that he returns. And we'd better have oil in our lamps. So this is a critical factor, and I think ties in very well with what Christ said there. At midnight a cry came. Well, people tended to be asleep. And now the church has come apart. I think a lot of people are beginning to go back to sleep. And is that not indeed a future prophecy even yet today about the ten virgins? When Christ returns, all would be asleep. Half would wake up and have oil, and half would not. So, based on that, combined with this, it is very important that we stand vigilance all the time, day and night. Don't ever relax, give up, or say, well, it's night, and in prophecy in a way it is, isn't it? It's always darkest before the dawn. And Christ even warned not to say, well, when's it going to happen? I guess it's just not going to be here. Lose their focus and begin to beat and mistreat and abuse their fellow servants and do their own thing. It is a critical time, and I think we're getting very, very close to it, 
and we simply cannot afford to let down our guard day or night. And this emphasizes that. Bless God, you servants of God. Now, who would that be today? That would include us, would it not? So this is written to us. Others read it in past times, and it applied to them, certainly in their lives, because we only live a certain amount of time as a physical human being, and our judgment is based on that lifetime. So it meant something to every human being who understood God's way throughout history. But it means even more for us when we understand the context in the light of other prophecies and how this applies to us as the last generation in a more specific way than it ever has to people in the past. All the prophecies of Revelation, of Daniel, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel may have had some impact on people four or five hundred years ago. But I'll guarantee you they have a lot more impact on us. And even Daniel was not understood by any of those generations, and it is to be understood now and in the ensuing months and years ahead of us better and better, because it is going to come more into focus as bits and pieces of it are fulfilled. So it all has more meaning for us today than it ever has for anyone else in the past. Behold how we should stand back and say, Bless the Eternal who's given us the knowledge that we have. We have more knowledge than anyone in history has ever had. And we have more knowledge, I think, right here than most people in the church have today about some things. doesn't make us any better than them, but we have some understanding that they simply don't have. So should we be counting our blessings, as he says here? You bet we should. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Eternal. Within His church, which is the living sanctuary, even here in this building, which is a sanctuary from the world where we can come and meet together before God. So lift up your hands and bless the Eternal. The Eternal that made heaven and earth bless you out of Zion. Now, he says he is going to bless his people in the end time out of Zion and Jerusalem. It is important to know where the true Zion is. Because if we come to Zion singing and laughing, as he says in another place, you better know where to go. You better know where God is placing his name, or has placed it in the past, and where it still is. Because that's what he says. I'll bless you out of Zion. Some people want to go to that Jerusalem over there. They want to go to that Zion, such as it is. And they think that's the place to gather. I think that is going to be a very, very dangerous place to be. And I think that God has led us here. And I think this is where other people are going to come in the near future when God brings up the two witnesses and the remnant with them to build the latter temple. The blessing is going to come out of Zion. That's very clear here. So where is it? Praise you the Eternal. Praise you the name of the Eternal. Verse 135, or chapter 135. Praise Him, O you servants of the Eternal. So it's a general praise, isn't it? Twice. And then it makes it more specific. Everybody ought to praise the Eternal. But more specifically, we should praise the Eternal. Because we have been given the new covenant out of Jerusalem. And we are His servants. So to us it means more. You that stand in the house of the Eternal, in the courts of the house of our God. Now, I think this again is projecting the same prophecy that Haggai and Zechariah do. Because he's, look at the context. When is peace and unity coming to the church in the end time? Haggai tells us that. Zechariah tells us that. And those who will stand in the house of the Eternal or the latter temple will be in the best place to praise the Eternal in the courts of the house of our God.
Praise the Eternal, for the Eternal is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is pleasant. Doesn't He say that these fasts will be turned into feasts of joy? That the trees of the field will clap their hands and will come with singing and rejoicing because God has again turned His face and is blessing the church. And the, the beauty and the peace and the harmony and the praise to God will be there. Well, he just described where it's going to come from, including salvation, and says, you who know this, and you who will be there to partake of it, sing praises to God. Verse 4, For the Eternal has chosen Jacob to himself, and Israel for his particular treasure. Now that's mentioned again in places like James and Peter. Peculiar is a bad translation. Particular, chosen, set aside or redeemed people. So this is a prophecy, and maybe Peter even quoted from here when he made those statements. About a third of the New Testament is direct quotes from the Old, or paraphrases from the Old. For I know that the Eternal is great, and that our Eternal is above all gods. Now isn't this current? God is about to show that He is the God of all gods. The Olympics were the worship of false gods, and religion is involved in the Olympics. I wrote an article of that on that back in CGG, showing how utterly pagan the Olympics are. A good thing not to watch or partake in. The true God of the universe is about to show His hand. And as Ezekiel said over and over dozens of times, they shall know that I am the Eternal. And He has chosen the church today. And that's what Peter referred to, was the church and the people in it, as His particular treasure. So it's speaking of us here. For I know that the Eternal is great, and that our God is above all gods. Whatsoever the Eternal pleased, that He did in the heaven and in earth, and in the seas, and all deep places. When it came to creation, when it came to do all the works that God has done, He did as He pleased. Now, Satan is causing people to do as he pleases. And that's why we pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it will be enforced on this earth when Christ returns with a rod of iron. No longer will you have a choice in whether you obey or not. If you disobey, you will get no rain. If you disobey, you will have the rod upon your back. He will rule with a rod of iron. Now, Christ will gently lead where He can. And He is very gentle by nature. But cross Him and the rod comes out. We need to understand that about our God. He will tolerate sin now. In the millennium, He will not tolerate it because it will be enforced peace. Now, you can go against it and die. But if you start to do the wrong thing, somebody's going to walk up behind you and say, No, this is the way. Go this way. That will not be allowed. We will be kings and priests. And believe it or not, in that sense, we will be policemen. People will be policed then. You are free moral agents now. We can preach, we can teach, and you and I can make choices as to how much and whether we obey and what we obey, can't we? And the church isn't here to police you. It's only here to teach you, to show you, what you should do to serve God. And you have to make those choices. And you will either receive eternal life or eternal death based on the choices you make. Now, then there will be no choice. You will do God's way or you will die. Well, now that is a choice in, its sense, in, it, in itself. Live or die. But he tells us now, why will you die, O Israel? Why won't you turn to me, see? 
If we're going to be kings and priests, and policemen, if you will, in the world tomorrow, telling them, no, don't go that way, go this way, then we must learn to serve God with all our heart now and do His way even when we don't want to, while we have free moral agency. Because we often want to do contrary to God's way, do we not? Yes, we do. And it sometimes becomes very, very difficult to do it His way. But we have to. So we can be there, having done it, on our own volition, with His help, by His Spirit, to help others do the same, so that they do not die. If we choose life, then we can help them choose life. So He's given it to us today. We are spiritual Jacob, spiritual Israel. Verse 7, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries, who smote the firstborn of Mitzrayim, both of man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of you, O Mitzrayim, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants. God was more powerful than the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at that time, and that example is used here who smote great nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land for an heritage, and heritage unto Israel, his people. Now, those Canaanites and the tribes mentioned here, as we've seen in the table of nations, were all of Ham. It is interesting that the archaeologists say they can find no evidence of any black culture or existence of Hamitic people in the Middle East, period. So where was Israel taken captive? What land did the Canaanites have? And they lived there, not just in Mitzrayim, which we have seemed to think was the Egypt of North Africa today, but the Promised Land itself, was inhabited by the children of Ham. So they were in captivity in Ham several times in the Psalms. And that the promised land itself was their land, and God gave it as a heritage to Israel, His people. There is evidence of a black culture all over North and South America. All over it. But none in the Middle East. This is another very interesting verse. Your name, O Eternal, endures forever, and your memorial, O Eternal, throughout all generations. We keep a memorial on the 14th of Abib every year of God delivering Israel out of Mitzrayim. It is, as Exodus 12 says, a memorial and a holy day. And we never saw that before until somebody brought it to us here. Checked it out and it fit. So we have a memorial, a Sabbath, a holy day, the 14th of Abib, every year. As a memorial of what God did. For the Eternal will judge His people, and He will repent Himself concerning His servants. There's a lot of encouragement in verse 14. Judgment is now on the house of Israel, the church, as we see in the New Testament. And... He will repent or relent himself concerning his servants. We've seen in many scriptures how he's turned his face from us at the moment. But he says in a short while he will turn his face back and shine upon his servants. And the commandment keepers are his servants today. He is going to turn his face and shine on us. Your name, O Eternal, endures forever, and your memorial, O Eternal, through... Oh, let's see. I already read that. Verse 15. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. Ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. Interesting that again in Haggai, he says, the gold and the silver is mine. There are people today who think they own the gold and the silver. But God says, it's mine. And no matter how many idols they make, He is going to return it 
to himself and to his people. And the world is not going to like it, I'll guarantee you. But he is above all their gods. They that make them are like to them, so is everyone that trusts in them. They're blind, deaf, and dumb when it comes to true understanding and knowledge. And only God's people today have that. So it has to be talking about whom? Those who have the knowledge of God and the Spirit of God. Verse 9, or 19, I mean, Bless the Eternal, O house of Israel. Bless the Eternal, O house of Aaron. And we know that a high priest in the likeness or the similitude or a type of Aaron is to appear again here at the end. So this is a prophecy. Bless the Eternal, O house of Levi. You that fear the Eternal, bless the Eternal. Now, Paul made it very clear that even though the house of Levi was where the priesthood was then, that it had been changed to Christ and his priesthood. And he says, is it not obvious that Christ came out of Judah, not Levi? That's why we are called spiritual Jews or Judah today instead of spiritual Levites. Still a priesthood, still a ministry, but it is under a different high priest. And the high priest of the end time will also be under the priesthood of Melchizedek, not the priesthood of Levi. Blessed be the Eternal out of Zion. Says it again. This is recurrent throughout. Which dwells at Jerusalem. You can't have Zion here and Jerusalem there. They both have to be together, either here, there, or somewhere. And archaeology and Scripture do not fit there, so where? This makes it very clear. We'll be blessed out of Zion, which dwells at Jerusalem. They are together. Praise you, the Eternal. Let's stop there for today.